Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. In today's program, we continue our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, and listen to this message called, Living the Grace-Filled Life. I'm reading Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know if I've ever heard a more demanding and seemingly impossible command than this. How can I love my enemy? How can I be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? I mean, both of those things seem impossible, and yet I hear Jesus demanding it. What's to be done? So let's start with enemies. Every once in a while, I'll hear someone teaching on this passage by making the following application. They'll say it may be that we have misinterpreted the other person's actions and they were not our enemy in the first place. If we only took the time to listen and hear them out, we might gain a new perspective and we would stop villainizing them. Perhaps, so the argument goes, the other person is reacting to something and might react differently if they were shown love and concern. Well, perhaps and, well, perhaps not. I mean, the point I'm making is that that discussion, even though worthwhile, has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking about someone who is legitimately the enemy of one of his followers. Previously, Jesus was speaking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and later he would speak about being thrown into prison for his sake. See, Jesus was assuming his followers would have enemies, and more so, he was assuming the enemies would be evil, fierce, unmerciful, and brutal. See, an enemy is an enemy, and nothing we can do can change that. The only choice we have is how we respond to an enemy. See, the point that Jesus is making in this passage is not that you might win your enemy over. The point is that you have a sworn enemy who intends to harm you, and you as his follower are required to love that person. Indeed, we are to perfectly respond as our Father in heaven responds to that person. Now, we're going to come back to that. But before we do, let's consider other places where Jesus touches on this matter. In Luke 18, Jesus is speaking about prayer and the willingness of our Heavenly Father to answer when we pray. He tells a parable, the parable of the unrighteous judge who seemed unwilling to respond to a poor widow, who kept coming to him and asking, give me justice against my adversary. And she had a sworn enemy, and her only recourse was in the law courts. Eventually, because of her persistence, the judge gave her justice. Now, the point of that parable was not that God is like that judge. Rather, he's rather unlike that judge. He doesn't give us begrudging relief from our enemy. Indeed, according to Jesus in verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Now, I raise this so that we would understand that Jesus is not teaching that we should allow our enemies to have their way. Rather, we should seek that enemies will find their day of justice. 
It's called hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's called knowing what is evil and what is good. Okay, I think we're ready to tackle what Jesus said. If he elsewhere teaches that his people should cry aloud to God for justice, what is he telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount? And if he indicates that we should learn from God himself, what can we learn from God in the way that he treats evil people? Well, in order to understand that, Jesus teaches something that theologians would later call the doctrine of common grace. The doctrine of common grace is quite involved, but it can be reduced to a very simple formula. There's a kind of grace that comes from God, which God freely gives apart from salvation. In other words, it's not saving grace, but it is a certain kind of grace that God distributes regardless of how people respond to him. Indeed, God gives grace even to his most vigorous enemies. Paul spoke about that in Acts 14, verses 16 and 17. When he was evangelizing the city of Lystra, he said, In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And David said something very similar, Psalm 145, verse 9. He said, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And then later in that same psalm, in verses 15 and 16, David adds, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, this is not just true when it comes to God's provision. It's also true in at least four other realms. Let me briefly describe them. According to John 1 verse 9, Jesus is the true light who enlightens, John says, everyone. Note the word everyone. Now, this speaks primarily to the light of God, but it's also true that God in grace has provided intellect, learning, the ability to educate, the ability to progress, to people and to nations that have rejected him. In the realm of the intellect, God has blessed all regardless of their response to him. This is also true in the realm of morality. According to Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul speaks of a moral law written in people's hearts so that sometimes their conscience commends them. Sometimes it condemns them. And out of the moral conscience have come laws in all cultures against, for instance, stealing, murder, so forth. Many countries and cultures insist on societal norms that further human decency and virtue. According to the Bible, this moral virtue is not automatic. It comes from God as grace. See, if you have a friend or a neighbor who rejects Christ and yet is a kind and gracious man or woman, well, this person is so entirely because of God's gift of common grace. All humanity is fallen, and the sin in all of us is pervasive. Were it not for common grace, there would be no virtue in this world at all. God provides it apart from our responsiveness to him. A third realm of common grace would be in the area of human government. According to Romans 13 verse 1, there is no authority except from God. And hence, in his kindness, God has extended grace to countries all over the world that allow them to govern and be governed in decency. They provide order, they impose laws, and even further progress. 
Again, this is not natural. Sin would dictate chaos. But God has given common grace. And a fourth realm is in the spiritual realm. Look at it this way. God is not obligated to answer any prayer that an unbeliever prays, but he sometimes does. There is a peculiar verse that believers have sometimes struggled over, but once we understand common grace, well, it all makes sense. It's found in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, and it says, Our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, this passage does not teach universal salvation. The kind of saving that Paul has in mind in that passage is a saving from distress, a rescuing of people in difficult situations. God often acts in compassion towards unbelievers simply because he is gracious. And so a robust doctrine of common grace means that there is a kind of grace, a different grace than saving grace, which is applied only to the elect. Common grace is grace that applies to all people in varying degrees, but like all grace, it's not earned or deserved. And the amazing thing about common grace is that it is applied even to those who are the enemies of God. God is kind to his enemies. Now, of course, as Paul reminds us in Romans, there's a warning inherent in this. Romans 2.4 reminds non-believers not to presume on God's kindness, his forbearance and patience, for these things are given so that we might reflect on them, so that it might lead us to repentance. But of course, in many, it does not. Common grace does not mean that God is tolerant of evil. It does mean, however, that he is not willing to sweep it under the rug. Indeed, a day of judgment is coming. No enemy of God will prosper, but God's kindness, his grace, his love to his enemies means that he will be patient to them in the present era. Now, before we move back to what Jesus taught, it is important that we understand that this biblical teaching is common grace. I'm amazed at how often even Bible believers don't understand that. Sometimes I hear Christians say, perhaps sin isn't as great a problem as we had imagined because there's good in the world. But as a matter of fact, there's good in the world only because God is gracious. And against this background, we're ready now to consider what Jesus said about love for enemies. To most of us, on the surface, it would seem that showing real love towards our enemies is almost impossible. Yet Jesus clearly commands it. The truth is, we'll never properly understand this principle without first understanding how Jesus himself treats his enemies, those who reject him and his ways. Well, Dr. Neufeld helps us grasp the importance of the doctrine of common grace. And when we come back, we'll finish our study with some practical application on how to live grace-filled lives. Last year, our team began to examine how effectively Back to the Bible Canada was fulfilling its mission of Bible teaching. One outcome of those conversations was a new statement that better reflected our core calling, Bible teaching you can trust. Another outcome was an increased effort to ensure the maximum number of people were being reached, gaining a better understanding of God, the Bible, and growing in their walk with Jesus. These efforts have produced fruit as evidenced in these gracious words from Shannon. My spiritual walk has never been the same, and the teaching of Dr. Neufeld has opened up scripture for me in a way that I have longed for for years, but until now have never experienced. 
Thank you for the role your prayers and support play in making this ministry possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Let's look specifically at the example that Jesus gives. He wants us to imagine two men, one is evil and one is good. Let's assume for argument's sake that the two men have adjoining farms. One man awakens in the morning and he's in a foul mood. He's a hangover. He's been fighting all night with his wife because of his frequent affairs and he yells at his wife that it doesn't mean anything. She should leave him alone. His children are told there is no God. It's all a bunch of nonsense that intellectually deficient people believe in. And the church, well, all they ever want is your money. Hypocrites, every one of them. And the adjoining farm, the other man also awakens. He grabs his Bible and finds a quiet place where he reads the word. And as he does every morning, and then he sinks to his knees and begins to worship and thanks God by recounting every blessing he has received from God's hands. And before he finishes his prayer time, he ends by pleading with God for his wife and his children, asking for God's mercy and grace on their lives. Then he commits his day to the glory and praise of his Redeemer. He's ready for work in that day. See, both men go out to work their fields, and it seems that it will be a good harvest this year for both men. Since God can do anything, he could so govern the universe that drought and plague and darkness like the plagues of Egypt should fall upon that evil man's house. But he doesn't. He sends rain in proper season on both men's crops and provides the rhythms of nature to bless both men. Look around you. God has blessed some very wicked nations with oil and natural resources. Look around you. God has blessed some men who deny him at every step with some impressive intellects. Look around you. God has even provided a decency of morality to men lost in sin who refuse to call upon him. That's what God has done. Now let's connect this thought with the thought of loving our enemies and to the prior teaching about turning the other cheek. We notice then that when Jesus said, don't resist the one who is evil, he's not talking about not locking your doors or calling the police. Neither does he infer that we should not work to create a culture where we can be salt and light and arrest the downward tendency towards decay. We should work for a culture where evil is punished and righteousness is rewarded. You know, in a fallen world, that often doesn't happen, but we must work for it. There is, for instance, a place for Christian politicians and Christian lawmakers. And there is a sense in which it is righteous to resist evil and evil people, and to fail to do so is an act of wickedness. But Jesus is talking about developing an attitude toward others that does not seek revenge. Never pay back evil for evil on a personal level. You're a follower of Jesus. You don't pay people back for the evil that they've done to you. You don't pursue personal vendettas. Indeed, if you pay back at all, it will be out of the abundance of grace and love that Christ has given you. And then Jesus takes this same matter to another level. He now says, let's say the person doesn't just insult you or happen to harm you. Let's say that person is your sworn enemy. What should you do then? In verse 43, Jesus begins this teaching by saying, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Now, we've seen that Jesus is not taking issue with the Old Testament, but with the popular teaching of his day. Nowhere is this more clear than here. The Old Testament never says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But it must have been very common for people to actually believe that it was in there. Let me give you a contemporary example of that. I'm amazed at how deeply rooted is the belief among many that the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. All sorts of people actually believe that's in the Bible. Some even believe they've read it somewhere. But of course, believing it's in there doesn't mean that it is. And that, I think, is what was happening here. So what does the Old Testament law actually say? Well, Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we can see and hear clearly the Old Testament does teach love for neighbor. And yet within the same chapter down to verse 34, we read, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. So clearly, the Old Testament does expand the category of love to extend beyond the native-born Hebrew to the foreigner or the immigrant. And so a fair reading of the Old Testament finds numerous places where the barrier between Jew and Gentile was intended to be broken down. Jews were called upon to love Gentiles even as they loved fellow Israelites. But there was more. Exodus 23, 4-5 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue him. And so the Old Testament did teach that you were to bless your enemy. But Jesus added to that teaching, after all, he had come to bring the law to its fulfillment. And here's what he adds, something the Old Testament did not teach. Not only shall you help your enemy when he's in trouble, but you shall love your enemy. So what does that mean? Well, for one, the most basic is this. You must not victimize your enemy. But the second, and this goes far beyond refraining from revenge, you are called upon to pray for your enemies. But how should we pray for them? Well, yes, we, we should pray that they should repent of the evil that they do. But, but think about that for even a moment. What if God answers your prayers? What if your enemy comes to the place where they seek God for forgiveness and yours as well? What then? See, if you're a revengeful person, you might say, that's not good enough. And then you'll put stipulations on what they must do. But if you love your enemy, you should be making it easy for them to repent. If they repented of evil, you should be the first to welcome them and even work to help them to build them up. To the one who repents, we should commit never to bring up the past again. When reconciliation is possible, we will be the first person to make that possible. But there is something else, and this might be the hardest thing of all that Jesus taught us to do. Watch verse 47. If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? What Jesus requires is that when we come upon our enemy, that we greet him or her. See, I'm not always sure what kind of greeting he has in mind, but it involves cordiality, pleasantness. Now, the final verse, the one that gives us so much trouble. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's begin by assuming that Jesus is not demanding that his followers should be sinless. 
Later in 1 John 1 verse 8, John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So first of all, people and even the followers of Jesus have sin. And second, we will not achieve sinlessness on this side of heaven. And so what did Jesus mean? I think the answer is found in the word perfect. See, the word perfect can mean lacking nothing. See, what Jesus was saying is that we should lack nothing in this regard. He meant that we shouldn't be half-hearted in our obedience towards our enemies. The perfection of the Father that we are trying to imitate is the kind of thing in which the Father gives evildoers time and kindness so that repentance is possible. And we should follow his example and do exactly as he has done. Think of it this way. If your enemy wants to repent, does your action towards him or her, as it is right now, make it hard for them or easy for them to repent? You should do just like your Father in heaven does. He is gracious, allowing his enemies to think if they would only turn to him for mercy, they will find grace before him. And we should think that God wants that of us. If our enemy seeks to repent and set matters right, ask for our forgiveness, walk righteously, would they, looking at us, think that were possible? Would they think that we would rebuff them or welcome them? Be just like your Father in heaven. John, this is a critical issue because I think we struggle with uh, loving our enemies sometimes. But if we're going to love our enemies, how do we do so without opening ourselves up to even more abuse? It's such an important question, Ben, because there is a line that we are called upon to draw. It's not just it's a fine line we're trying to figure it out. We are to look to protect the innocent and as well. I think that we should, in times when we are being abused, we should look for ways, as Paul did, I appeal to Caesar, he said, you know, as the Jewish authorities were looking to abuse him. So while he was making every use of the rights that he had and taking every protective measure, at the same time, he developed an inner attitude which continues to display love towards those who are desperately lost. Jesus knew that in this life, we would face enemies, just like he did. He also knew that we would be tempted to take matters into our own hands in the way we treat them. But as his followers, we're to take a much different path in displaying grace and kindness towards those who are against us. In this study, we see yet another example of how our Lord came to fulfill the law, thus setting the stage for us to become more like him. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow for a message called Giving and Secrecy from this series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In these challenging days, there are so many voices calling for our attention, but nothing is more essential than allowing our Bibles to speak to our lives and to be the compass that guides our choices and decisions. Psalm 119.105 reminds us, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be your compass, guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. So tune in every weekday on this station or visit us online to discover all the different opportunities to access all the free Bible teaching resources available to you. 
So for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.